You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Tuesday, the 20th of July, 2021. Thank you all for tuning in. On tonight's program, we're going to be doing, we're going to start with our usual, and we're going to go through one of the Psalms uh, for meditation and just to, um, again, remind ourselves what we're doing is to glorify God, and hopefully this program will be a blessing to all listening. Um, We will be doing... Uh, critique later on uh, on somebody I did a critique on years ago. I had to look it up when I did it last. Um, I'm going to be doing critique on Joe Schimmel. I don't know if anybody. Um, I, th- I suppose Joe is fairly well known, and um, he's known for uh, Good Fight Ministries, and he's done a lot of movies over the years. Actually, I didn't even realize this. I kind of really realized this, I think, maybe a year or two ago. I can't remember when I ex- exactly made the connection, but I, I, I forgot that he was the guy that, um, you know, the whole backward masking thing from the whole Led Zeppelin thing. And uh, years ago, I used to find that interesting and think, mm, maybe now I'm like, eh, yeah. Um, so anyway... Um, but uh, we're going to be, first of all, anyway, before we get into that critique, he's been making comments about Calvinism. He's been fairly anti-Calvinism for many years. He believes, long and short of it, he believes you, you, lose, you can lose your salvation. There are many Arminians who, you know, or people who just don't like the, the Calvinism title or whatever, yet are fairly solid on many things, and I, I don't have a huge problem with these people per se. Obviously, I'd prefer if the whole church was unified and reformed and everything else like that, but um, this side of eternity, we're not going to have that. So, but when I see people, and I've always had a deep concern for anybody who believes you can lose your salvation, um, uh, John MacArthur quote comes to mind when he said, um, if you could lose your salvation, you would. So, um, which I think perfectly sums it up because we're sinful creatures. We couldn't keep ourselves saved if we try. I think it's a massively important issue. I remember um, years ago coming across, when it wasn't in Reformed circles, it was pretty common to come across people who would believe you could lose your salvation. So... Look, we'll cover it. It's a clip from his Good Fight radio show program that was put on YouTube. We'll put it on the video in a second. Hopefully, Lord willing, it'll be a blessing. Um, Yeah, and uh, hopefully it'll help people. So let's turn to Psalm 40 and read through Psalm 40, and we'll just pray before we do, and just make a few comments on this. Because I find... It's a good practice to to read scripture, to remind ourselves why we're doing this, to remind ourselves, you know, it's easy just to burst in through things um, and to not look to the Lord and all these things, even though, okay, this is not, this is not preaching, this is not, um, 
anything like that. But at the same time, for this is outside of whatever kind of education or teaching that you may be getting in your church, and hopefully it's a it's a good supplement to that. But hopefully at the same time, it's still going to be a blessing to you and it won't lead you in the wrong direction. So that's what we pray for. So we're not going to read all of Psalm 40. It's quite, it's a long enough one, but we will read um, just the first five verses, mainly because we have quite a bit to get through um, on the critique, looking at Calvinism and other things relating to that. So uh, before we do, we will uh, ask God for his blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray and we praise and we thank you, O Lord, for your mercy. And we pray, Lord, that you would please help us to be blessed and encouraged and help us to see why we're doing these things, O Lord. Um, bless us, O Lord, as we read your holy and infallible word. And may it lead us this evening to the truth, closer to you, and may the truth fill our hearts. In Jesus' name we now pray. Amen. Now, Psalm 40, verse 1, just as down to verse 5. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear, and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, so. Um, here we have a, a psalm that I particularly love singing. This is not the, the version of the psalm that we sing typically. It, you know, in our home, we typically sing this to the 1650 met metrical version. Quite a cheap psalter to get because it's been around a long time. It's pretty much like the authorized version equivalent of the Psalter. Um, and I would encourage you to sing it because it's a wonderful thing to remind us of what the Lord has saved us out of the miry clay, set our feet upon a rock, establishing our way. And um, also, it's all the work of God. Beginning, middle, and end. Now, no, we're not robots. No, we, we do... We are commanded to do things, but also at the same time, anything that we are able to do, the Lord enables us to be able to do. There is a, and that's in sanctification, but in our salvation, rescuing us from the grave, rescuing us from being dead in trespass and sins, from being dead, um, well, that's all a work of God, and that's all a work of grace. He has put the new song in our mouth. So we want to praise him because he has put that there. And that new song, it kind of gives you the, the sense of, you know, the deliverance from the land of Egypt when what happened in Exodus 15, there's Moses as a new song. 
of praise and there's that worship and there's that flow. It doesn't mean you write, you pen a new song or anything like that, but there's that sense of, of praise and worship because of what God has done and you finally see it. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. He has been made a new creature in Christ Jesus. He no longer, as a pattern of his life, follows the way he used to. He now follows after Christ. He is different. I remember a point one time I made in a sermon. What impact does the Holy Spirit have upon us? Does he make us holy or less holy? Very simply, the work of the Spirit of God, and the more we grow, notice this is in sanctification, the more we'll grow in holiness. Now, there is backsliding, there is times we do fall into sin, etc., and so on, but the whole point of sanctification is in this life, even though as imperfect as it will be, we will be made more and more like Christ. Now, may God bless that to our number. Again, there's so many things that could be said about that, but we pray that um, you'll read that and also sing it in your home. And Lord willing, hopefully you're going to a church, perhaps that would sing, that does sing the Psalms, although that is hard these days. Okay, so um, we're going to get into our critique of Joe Schimmel. Joe Schimmel is... Um, I don't know what his title is exactly with Good Fight Ministries, but he is associated with Good Fight Ministries for many years. Years ago, and I actually looked this up before a couple of hours ago just to check, August 13th, 2016 was the last time I did a program on him. And this is the second time I've ever done a program on him. Um, I was deeply concerned back then. It was, I was, and I'm going to probably include it, maybe in the show notes in megataradio.com, that old program. Don't know how well I covered it back then. You know, sometimes you listen back to old stuff and you go, hmm, maybe I'd phrase that slightly different now. So maybe maybe it's better just to listen to this. Not sure. Um, so anyway, uh, the last time I talked about Joshima was episode number 210 back, what was it, five years ago, whatever it was, five and a half years ago. So um, not... Something I enjoyed doing, because years ago I used to like Joe Schimmel, about probably like 10, 9, 10 years ago. And over time, I gradually got more and more concerned. And I was a young Christian at the time, and I got to a point where I just stopped watching his videos altogether. And now I'm at the point where I, I don't think people should be watching his videos. This is not to do with Calvinism, by the way. Um, but I'm just... I'm also, de I'm, de I'm concerned as well with the pop culture obsession. Um, I'm not saying that you can never cover stuff from pop culture. I think it's maybe at times when a lot of people think so-and-so is a Christian, maybe do a small thing here and there, maybe something here and there. But when, when you kind of go into the, which is a lot of what Good Fight Ministries does, at least it did years ago when I stopped watching it. Um, a lot of the videos was showing lewd videos and we're exposing them. They're so satanic, all this kind of stuff. It, and you kind of go, is it really necessary? And you're a lot of the times, a lot of these videos by people, young Christians, especially, and it doesn't matter what age you are in the Lord. It's a putting a potential stumbling block before people. 
I find. And I, 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 I take a real objection to much of the videos and much of the explicit content. And I'll put it like this. If you have to put a warning at the start of your video, which I know some of his stuff does, warning, graphic content and all that, why on earth are you sharing it? And brother, if you're listening, why are you sharing it? And I would urge you, apart from what I'm going to cover, I'm, I'm, I'd urge you to re-examine this as well. But I think Joe um, and his co-host on the program seem to have a very, very strong dislike of all things Calvinism and things like that. But I, I would urge them as well to have a rethink of the, the content that would be put on the videos and stuff like that. And to think about Christians, especially new Christians who just come out of the world and, oh, this person's satanic and this is that. And really what they need to be doing is getting into the word of God. Um, that's how discernment grows. Um, I'm not saying that you're, 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 we need to be innocent concerning evil. We need to be wise as serpents, yes, but that wisdom largely comes from the word of God and that comes with time and discernment you don't stick a baby and if you're a new christian most of the time that's usually people i think who are mostly watching this stuff and expose them to this stuff and i i think it's dangerous a lot of it some of, i'm not saying all the videos they put out are bad some of them are quite helpful okay um but i wouldn't put all of the videos in that category and i wouldn't advise people to watch them because of that i mean you can just you can do a video maybe you call people and all that saying maybe you get a bible verse and say don't be subjecting yourself and looking at these music videos that are horrible we shouldn't even set our eyes upon them okay so that's just by way of that now we're going to go to if anybody's in the chat you can just let us know hopefully there's all this is <laughs> going well and things like that um um, before we get into this, and just going to double check that everything is going smoothly with the technology. So, yeah, seems to be going okay so far. Right. Okay, so um, this is about, this is the, re this is a, if you want to find this on YouTube, um, the, then this is what caught my attention. I'm going to show it to you here. Um, get it up here. Yeah. So it's a video called Did God Create Evil? Now, that caught my attention, and I knew his anti-Calvinist leanings. I, From what I can see, I largely agreed with the answer that he gave. It's largely dealing with calamity, um, and no problem with that. I kept listening and uh, was kind of disturbed by the following answer so i kind of found this stuff by accident but let's go and hopefully it will be a blessing to you all and so crystal asks how would you respond to a once save always save believer who says that believing otherwise believing something other than once saved always saved is taking away from christ's power if you don't accept once save always save then you are not accepting his sacrifice and are saying that it was not enough how would you respond to someone who brought up and this is a problem that i had i mean this is a problem that i had when i when i did the critique years ago that putting forth a gospel where in a sense what makes the difference for you to continue to the end 
it must be men. It, it, it must be in, in this. If if you don't, per, it, it's amazing that this level of you know say like, oh Calvin say you must persevere to the end and all that. If you've been born again, you're kept. Now, if there's someone, just to get into the... If someone does appear to profess faith and falls away and has gone back into the world, they were never a believer to begin with. That's the Calvinist position in a very... Calvinist position, you know, a reform position, whatever, um, going back centuries, etc. and so on. As in, if God saves you, he has saved you. If, if God has justified you, you are before God, declared to be righteous, holy. In Christ Jesus, your sins washed clean. And, and then we're saying, if that has happened, how can our works potentially undo that? Now, I know the concern, and in all the passages you talk about, oh, lots of people go away from the truth. Yes, they never knew the Lord. But let, let him answer the question. Let's That accusation. Yeah, if I was talking to a Calvinist brother or sister who had said that, that you have to believe in once saved, always saved. You have to believe that once you're saved, whatever you do and however wicked you become or whatever, uh, you're, you're still saved no matter what, even if you reject the faith or... Or you have to believe that you will automatically persevere now because of irresistible grace and you won't ever fall away. And uh, Okay, um, I'm going to ask, okay, is this one person who said this because is it, because both of them are completely contradictory to, another, to either of them. The first position he's putting forward is kind of a type of antinomianism that is wrong. It's not Calvinism at all to say, you know, you're saved no matter what you do, um, you know, if you reject the faith and all that. Well, if you reject the faith and you're an apostate, you never knew the Lord, you were never born again in the first place. If, or, he says, or if you, you'll persevere on to the end. Well, which is it? They're not both the same scenario. You know, it's like if you will persevere to the end, you're not going to apostatize. So it doesn't seem that he's very clear. Like, is this a smushing together of two different accounts he's heard? Because it doesn't sound like it's not, it can't possibly, at least it's not consistent with each other. Um, it's, let me just make this clear. A believer can fall into error. A believer can backslide. A believer can have dark times. But at the same time, if they have been brought into union with Christ, saving, if they have genuine saving faith, they will not fall away. However, many people falsely believe that they're saved, and Jesus will say to them on the last day, Depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, Matthew 7, 21. So there are people in the church who believe themselves to be saved um, and simply aren't. Hopefully, I think that's is that going red peaking there. Um, there's tares among the wheat. There are people who profess to be believers and are not. And we won't know. I think it'll shock many of us who are the false professors 
on the last day, and even maybe some weaker people who we think maybe we've rid them off or whatever, and actually are. So um, we don't know. We don't know the hearts. So there'll be cases like that. Uh, otherwise, you're rejecting God's power because then you're rejecting, you know, the the, the power of of his of his his keeping power, so to speak. Or his, and I, my simple answer would be to just ask them, do you believe the word of God is powerful? And they would say yes. I would say, do you believe what Paul wrote in Romans one sixteen uh, that you know he said, "I'm not ashamed of." The- okay, so now he's going over to the power of the word of God now. Before he gets into his kind of um, direction he's going, let's look at Romans 9, 6, which talks directly about the Word of God and its power um, and, and what it intends to do. So Romans 9, verse 6, says this, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. There's an external, visible Israel, and there's an internal Israel who have true saving faith, okay? And are actually saved. Nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for seed. And the whole point of it is, it's not that the word of God has taken none effect. It's not. It has done and set forth to do exactly what it meant to do. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. They're not all spiritual Israel that are of visible Israel. Today, you could say they're not all um, the invisible church. Those are truly in Christ that are of the visible church. Kind of in a modern day equivalent of that. Um, because, you know, Paul here is dealing with the rejection of Israel. And it's not that the word of God has taken none effect. Israel continues. Galatians 6 16, um, the Israel of God continues uh, through the church. So, the Word of God does exactly what it sets out to do. And we've got to make sure that we're not mistaking what we think it should do, as in, and what God sets out. Like, there's God's decreative will. He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. He's in control of all things, or otherwise he's not God. He's sovereign over everything that comes to pass. And he also, he's also got a prescriptive will. He has a will, the law of God, which sadly we break. So if you kind of muddle these together and make an analogy about this, um, Of Jesus Christ, where it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and also the Greek. I would say, do you believe in the power of the gospel to transform a life in the preaching of the gospel? And they would say, certainly yes. And I would say, well, do you believe that some people could reject the gospel? They'll say, well, obviously. Then I'd ask, ah, so you believe then that the gospel is not really powerful then? You're denying the power. Uh, no. Um, 
yeah, I know what I know what he's saying, and he's trying to draw an equivalence, but they're not. There's not really equivalence because if you go to Romans one sixteen, it's talking about the power to is the power. Let's look at it. Actually, I'm not trying to remember off the top of my head. Romans one sixteen. It says here, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why is he not ashamed? Why is Paul not ashamed? Because he's been changed. Okay. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Those people, it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek, and in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. It's talking about specific people, and it's the power of God into salvation for them. The people who have been changed by the Spirit of God hear the word, and are converted. Everyone else rejects it. So the only way that they can receive and be saved, and it's the power of God and to salvation for them, is if God gives them new hearts. Otherwise, they will reject it. Otherwise, all will reject it. Every single last one. And unless God opens the heart of a believer, there'll be no hope for anyone. There'll be no hope for anyone gospel and what would their response be they would say what would they say i was sorry about that i was well, if, I, if i asked yeah. that question you know yeah. you know uh they would say this they would say well of course i believe the power of gospel but that's their i felt like being cheeky there and i i didn't know <laughs> i don't yeah, anyway, anyway, i'm not sure if i don't know if his co-host was exactly following along with his argument either but that's their choice yeah or if it's a Calvinist, they're being honest, they would say, well, they were predetermined not to believe it, you know? Okay, this is where it kind of gets a bit silly, and I hate, I hate when there's comments like that, if he's being honest. Um, well, you're just, yeah. Let's play this again. What would they say? I was sorry about that. I was well, being, if, I, if I asked yeah. that question, you know, yeah. you know, uh, they would say this. They would say, well, of course I believe the power of gospel, but that's their, you know, that's their choice. Yeah. Or if it's a Calvinist. Um, okay. The difference is... God. The difference is God between the person who believes and the person who doesn't believe. If you're saying it's now, yes, the will is changed by the regenerated work of the of God in the sinner's heart. It's it's a bit like this. A picture of this would be this. If if you're blind, physically blind, and somebody's trying to describe for you, this is a limited analogy now, but describe for you the beauty of the sunrise, the sunset. Well, you don't know until your, your eyes have been opened. And imagine you're, you've received your eyesight again. And now you see it, you know, before you thought, oh, he's... No, I don't think it's that great. It's not, it doesn't even sound that great. But then you open the eyes, and it's the most wonderful, beautiful thing ever to be seen. And that is the way it is for the sinner. Actually, it's even worse, because the he is blind to the beauties of Christ, and he hates Christ until his eyes have been opened. And when his eyes have been opened... Then he sees the one he once hated, and now he loves him because he sees the beauties of him. He couldn't see it before. He's now a sweet aroma, a wonderful smell before him, and no longer in the same rebellion he once was. 
And because these affections have been changed, there's no forcing involved. Now he willingly, freely embraces Christ and the gospel. And until he does that, there's no hope for him. No hope for him at all. Now, then he goes on to say that, um, well, if he's being honest, well, he predetermined. You know, it's because God predetermined it that way. If he's being honest. Um, yeah, there's a sen- there's predestination in terms of the narrower sense of salvation. Right. And there's also predestination, you know, wider than election to every thing that is happening. Everything's been predestined because it's nothing's outside of the control of God. But apart from that, see, God is in control of everything. God sent Joseph into Egypt to save much people alive. There was a good purpose to it. But why do these brothers send him into Egypt? This is Joseph's brothers when they were in Canaan. Why? Because of wickedness, because of jealousy. Because Joseph was their father's favorite, etc. and so on. So while Joseph's brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good. There's an example where God did it. God has brought apart, he's the first cause of all things. And we see the sovereignty of God in the book of Job. Satan in Job 1 has to ask, God for permission. You can't do it without God. So every single thing that happens is not outside the control of God. So that's, let's just put the, park that aside for a second. What we have to ask ourselves is why does one person receive the gospel and why does another person not? And we can't just say, well, the Bible doesn't really talk about it. Yes, it does. It talks about the condition of man. It talks about how he's a slave to sin. How he is holy at war and rebellion. He's part of that seed, the seed of the serpent, which is at enmity between the seed of Christ, the seed of the woman, talked about in Genesis 3.15, and the seed of the serpent. There's enmity there from the beginning. And only in the blood of Christ is that enmity removed. The wall of partition is broken down. Uh, Ephesians 2.14. So, um, yes, it does talk about it. So why does one dead sinner receive the truth and another one doesn't? Is it because I figured it out? I made the right decision? That somehow, in some way, we are better than the other people who didn't pick, who didn't do the right thing. So we could, you know, to use, what was it, um, the Ar- Armenian prayer of... Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he came up with his Armenian prayer, was it, I don't know, was it in one of his sermons, but, you know, if you're being, I suppose you could say, consistent about this or whatever, you say, well, thank you, God, for making me so smart or wiser than the people that I chose you and those foolish people, oh, why didn't they pick? And look, I've heard people talk like that to me. Oh, you got saved at 24. I didn't figure it out until later. Why did I get saved at 24? Why did another person get saved when he was 12? Why did another person? Not because of anything within the person. 
not of themselves, lest any man should boast. It's not something from within you. Oh, it's faith. And yeah, the sinner exercises faith, which is a gift of God. It is the instrumental cause of salvation. The instrument, we'll, we'll get into this now in a second. The instrumental cause of salvation. There's so many things I want to, there's a bunch of books I have in front of me that I really want to grab here, but I just want to kind of simplify it down to what's at stake here. The, what's at stake is, you know, when you've got a, a jumper and you see a thread that's hanging off the edge and you, you, know, you cut the thread, you don't start pulling because what happens, you pull on this and it all falls apart. And that pulling of that thread, which unravels the entire jumper, is the doctrine of free will. It's the doctrine that either at the beginning, the middle, or the end, the man's salvation is anything to do with man. Man wants to have some part to play. He desperately wants to say, I did something. He doesn't want to hear that even the grace, that the faith to believe it was a gift of God, that even that, if it was according to his nature, he wouldn't have a hope. It's offensive to people. It was offensive in the 16th century. Rome was on the side, was against election, against the doctrines that we call Calvinism later on. And guess what? All the reformers, Church of England, across Europe, were all what might be called today Calvinism. Yeah, I hasten to use the term because the five points and all this kind of stuff weren't really developed until later. And usually in response to the remonstrance, the five points of the remonstrance which came later, Jacobus Arminius and all this kind of thing. So, I mean, the problem is when you see the tulip by itself, it's very easy, as some people have, is isolate, you know, importing what they think it means. Rather than reading an entire book, reading Confession of Faith, reading one of the creeds to discover what the reformers actually meant by these truths, rather than distorting it. But there's nothing new under the sun with a lot of these distortions. And uh, let's continue. Be honest, they would say, well, they were predetermined not to believe it, you know. But uh, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. That's the context. It's conditional. Salvation is conditional. So the, the gospel is. Okay, before we get into the nature of faith, right, and how exact, yes, it is conditional. It is conditional, but what type of condition, what type of um, cause is faith? It's conditional upon faith, yes, but is it conditional upon man? Is man or God the one who makes the difference? Just trying to make it all as simple as possible. Is the difference between somebody getting to the end of the race, or even beginning the race in the first place, does it depend on God, or is there some way? Yeah, God does everything he can, but really it's, well, it's, does this element, this little element, this little hair's breadth of a thing you have to do that, that depends on you, and if you don't exercise this faith, well, no, so I, I was talking about instrumental cause, Faith is the only instrumental cause of salvation. But there's other types of causes of salvation. There's the material cause. 
There's the formal cause. And if you've never heard these before, these are these are things that would have been taken from Aristotle's causes. It's not that people are following Aristotle or anything like that, but it's purely that it helps us to understand things. Philosophy should always be the handmaiden and the servant of theology. That was the, the view of Francis uh, Turton, the 17th century ref, uh, reformer. Now, and I'm just going to go through Aristotle's causes, right? Now, not all of these are actually Aristotle. It was the reformers who came up with the whole idea of the instrumental cause. But, and this is from page 74 of R.C. Sproul's book, Faith Alone. And in that book, he, he gives a um, Aristotle causes, a little table, material cause. And he gives the analogy, and this is nothing new to him or anything else like that, but of a sculptor sculpting. And what does he use? So the material cause of the sculpture is the material out of which the sculpture comes. So what's the material cause? The stone out of which a statue is carved. Then there's the formal cause. The design or the idea followed in the process of making something. A sketch is made by the sculptor as a pattern for the for the sculpture, just the kind of the plan, the idea, that's the formal cause. The final cause is the purpose for which something is made. And the efficient cause is the chief agent causing something to be made. So the efficient cause of salvation is God and God alone. The efficient cause, the chief agent causing something to be made, causing salvation to happen is God and God alone. But while he is the only chief agent causing something to happen, he uses an instrument. Faith. Faith alone, which is the instrumental cause, the means or the instrument by which something is made. And in this case, the sculptor's chisel. I'm no expert at all on Aristotelian philosophy or anything like that and I don't claim to be however however I urge you to get Sproul was good on in these areas and I would urge you to get this book Faith Alone there's a lot of good books Sproul has I think people know that but Faith Alone is an excellent book and in that book page 74 he goes through the different causes and to understand the role of faith as an instrumental cause like the chisel of the sculptor can really help you to understand the way in which faith plays a role in salvation and is a cause of salvation. Sproul writes this. Um, during the Reformation, page 75 of this book, during the Reformation, one point of dispute focused on the instrumental cause of justification. Rome declared that there are two instrumental causes of justification. The first is a sacrament of baptism. The second is a sacrament of penance. Therefore, Rome could speak of justification by the sacraments, by and through the sacrament of grace, of justification was received. The sacraments are the means by which justifying grace is received. In the Reformation formula, Sproul goes on to write, justification is by faith alone. The word by captures the idea and communicates the notion that faith, not the sacraments, is the instrumental cause of justification. Faith is the instrument by which we are linked to Christ and receive the grace 
of justification. Um, so I'd encourage you to read that if you're struggling with this area, because even the faith to believe, even that which we exercise is a gift of God. It is given to us. All that we need for salvation has been provided for in by God. And if the difference between you and your lost neighbor is you, then God is no longer the only efficient cause of salvation. And once you have done that, you have destroyed the gospel. I am not saying, therefore, that Joe is not a believer or anything like that. And you say, well, how, if you can teach something like this? I, I had a huge problem with what he taught years ago. There is something such as a blessed inconsistency. A consistent Arminian believes a false gospel. Now, I say consistent. Hear me out here. If they believe that the difference in salvation is man, you're lost. However, most Armenians, and most Armenians I've met, and I was an Armenian for years before I, I changed my views, don't believe that, and they believe that, yes, God is the only efficient cause, and you talk to them about it and go, oh, yeah, of course we believe that it's all of God, it's all of grace. So these two ideas that they're teaching, they believe it's all of Christ, and if they believe it's all of Christ, and depending on him alone, they are saved. The rest of their teaching and how that fleshes itself out, again, just like that thread, doesn't mean they're unsaved or anything else like that, but it's dangerous teaching. And just like that thread in the jumper, it will unravel the truth. During the Reformation, who taught free will? The Molinists, that was with the Jesuits. And then, I think, who was it? William Lane Craig made the comment later on that basically that Arminianism was the way Molinism got itself into Protestant thought and all this because it wasn't a Protestant idea at all. It wasn't, it wasn't reformed at all. And really, it was the doctrine of the Jesuits and the Roman Catholic Church. And they tried desperately to have the Reformation believe in the doctrine of free will. Let's continue with our critique of Joe Schimmel. power of God is salvation. Everyone who believes, you first, also the Greek... The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's it, it's powerful, dividing bone and, and marrow and you know uh, soul and spirit. It's so powerful. But if someone rejects the word of God when you preach it, we don't turn around and say, oh, the word of God just isn't powerful. Oh, the gospel. <laughs> but he's just quoting things and just saying, well, we say that he's powerful. How is it powerful? How is the word of God powerful? Well, the word of God is powerful because it does everything that it sets out to do. Everything. And nothing stops God at all. If you look at a passage with Pharaoh, what shall we say then? Uh, Pharaoh in Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I shall mercy. Because it says previously, it's not of him who wills, but, but of him that showeth mercy. That's God. Um, it's not to do with the will of man. This is verse 16. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to, to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, and I will show my power in you, 
and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills. On whom he wills. Isn't it like, <clears throat> there's no sense in the scripture where he's done everything possible and he's, he's tried everything. And it really all, the last bit depends on man. There's no power in that. That God is not omnipotent and all-powerful. And again, I'm sure that Joe has not put these two things together because he has a caricature of Calvinism. And at the end of the program, they started kind of going on about, oh, Calvin was the Pope of Geneva and all this kind of stuff, which just shows you where they're kind of coming from. Sadly, um, the idea of <laughs> Calvin being a Pope of Geneva is historically laughable, really, but um, I digress. Um, people haven't... It, it would be laughable if it wasn't... You see, if somebody was around, we would just call it what it is. Idle, malicious gossip of a brother who labored diligently, imperfect. Nobody's saying John Calvin was, was perfect, but a, a wonderful Christian, a godly man who suffered greatly. Um, for the cause of Christ, was kicked out of Geneva for three years, by the way. Oops. He must have been the worst pope ever of Geneva. Kicks out of Geneva for three years. Had to be persuaded to come back. He had such tight control of that city. <sighs> Guys, it really does become embarrassing. But Servetus! Oh, man. Yeah, everybody in Europe wanted said that Servetus deserved to die. It wouldn't matter what country he ended up in, he would have been executed. He was a preacher. And preachers had somewhat of an influence. All preachers had somewhat of an influence. He, <laughs> he had a lot of opposition. A lot of people were not getting... People have these rose-tinted glasses of what the reformers did, that they just with an iron fist... And largely, I'm sorry, but it, largely it's a lot of people who are very, I would even say kind of fundamentalist in their outlook. They just think that that's how change is made. Now, he, largely, most of the time, Calvin didn't get most of what he wanted. He believed in certain things, and uh, but it wasn't all up to him. But I digress, that's by the way. Okay powerful or, or if you say hey some people can reject the gospel oh you must not believe it's powerful no i believe it's powerful but god has set things up in such a way where he is going to redeem whosoever will people he wants people to be willing to acknowledge their sin the bible says god gives grace to the humble but he resists the proud so he's not good so i don't know if this was just again see i don't want to be like gotcha moment or anything like that and you know a pre-prepared sermon where you're going through your notes and a Q&A, they're very different, and it's kind of more off the cuff here. So, trying to give the benefit of the doubt that he doesn't really mean this, but if I'm to take what he just said at face value, he resists the proud, and, what was it, he embraces the humble, right? Okay, biblical concept. What does that to do with salvation? Who are the people who are humble? Is anyone who's a lost sinner, dead and trespassed in sins, Humble toward the gospel. Is anyone? He resists the proud, which is everyone outside of Christ. And through the work of the Spirit of God, making you alive, being born again of the Spirit of God, that's how you become humble. 
But are you saying that the difference is man? Oh, some people make themselves humble. Some people remain proud. And that's the difference. You see, again, I don't know if he's thought this out. Well, I'm sure he has thought it out in its own way, but these two ideas side by side. I... There's a common there's a common theme throughout this um, program. I haven't listened to any of these sermons in years, so um, perhaps it's just like this. But there's an awful lot of just what I would call almost like base hop jumping in in texts, and you're just quoting them really quickly, and you're just stringing a lot of things together. You can prove anything by that. You can. What you need to do is slowly go through the text, slowly, patiently, looking at the text in its context and allowing the text to speak. Not hopping around to different books which are in different contexts, which are in different scenarios, answering different things. Because when we do that, we're in danger sometimes of flatlining out Scripture, almost like every single part of Scripture is the same, and making it hermeneutically flat. It's okay to do it and quote one or two Scriptures if you've already laid out your point. But if most of your point is made by some quick references here and there, you can kind of make your... any Be careful with that. And if, the, if you're ever there at a sermon and somebody just hops around, they haven't really made their point. They haven't shown you where in the text they're getting their ideas. Their exegesis is a bit all over the place. Don't just take it at face value. Go home, read that text by yourself, for yourself. If necessary, get a commentary or two or whatever the case may be. And don't preach like this. I think when people start off, everybody's guilty of this in some way, shape, or form. But take your time to go through each of the words, because here's the thing. When you do it slowly, even if you're a Calvinist, by the way, you're going to find sometimes you overlook things. And you know what? That text that you're using, you might still be right in your conclusion, but that text you're using may not say what you think it says. Okay? Um, we'll continue. Offers the gospel to all, but the condition is you must humble yourself, gives grace to the humble. You must be converted, become like a little child, Jesus said, and humble yourself to get into the kingdom of God. So if someone refuses to accept the gospel and the power of God, that doesn't mean it's not powerful and powerful enough to save them. It certainly is, but it's conditioned. So I would say that it's powerful enough to make it possible for man to be saved. That's that's the gospel here. God has made it possible. For all to be saved. And what's the difference? Man. That's the problem with this teaching. My Calvinist brother, sister. And then I would say the same thing is true with the gospel. That, that, that the saving power of God. It's also conditioned upon faith. We read in 1 Peter chapter five. 1, yeah, 1, 5. 5 yeah. Yeah. We are kept by the power of God or preserved uh, by the power of God through faith. You know? So we're kept. He's keeping powers. Through faith. Salvation is by faith. We come to him. We're saved by grace through faith. It's conditional from beginning to end. 
So as we are joined salvation, we're kept, it says. That's what, thus saith the word of God, 1 Peter 1, 5. We're kept by the power of God through faith. Now, the Bible says the just shall live by faith, Hebrews 10, 38. The just shall live by faith. But if he draws back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Okay, so it's very, very clear in Scripture. Oh, I put myself on mute. So if you don't continue, and if you if you don't keep it going, if you, if your faith doesn't continue, could, could you imagine well, how much faith? Um, what if you backslide? Do you lose your salvation? Do you get it back again? Yeah, if your if your soul draws back from him, again, quoting texts dealing often with very different scenarios and situations and often talking about a situation where somebody is visibly, for all intents and purposes, a believer. But warned, if they do draw back, my soul will take no pleasure in them because if they do draw back, they're not a believer. They have no, they have no good reason to be confident that they are a believer. There's warnings. There's, you know, here's the thing. There should be warnings. If you're living a life of sin, there should be warnings to you. If there's no fruit in your life, there's a good chance there's no root. Actually, if there's no fruit, there's no root. But God is responsible for the root. And if God has planted the root, there will be fruit. If God has planted the tree, what can exactly pull it down? Scripture uh, that we have to put our trust in Jesus and we have to continue to trust him. So if someone rejects Jesus in our heart, the Bible says your heart can grow cold. The church there at Ephesus, they'd left their first love. Jesus warned that many would fall away and the hearts would grow cold. So people could turn away from the living God and their heart. Yeah, this is talking about visibly. It's not talking about every single heart of the people there. Um the hearts can go cold, and they're warned of the danger of that. can become cold. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have the power to keep them, but he does not keep them against their will. And he doesn't turn them... Who teaches that? Who exactly teaches that it's against their will? What utter nonsense. Now, I know that Joe Schimmel believes that in heaven... Somebody can't just, you know, if you're in heaven, you can't fall out of it or whatever. Um, are you kept in heaven against your will? What if you don't remain there? But you see, our, we have been glorified. We've been changed. Now, the process has begun at, at regeneration here. It won't be completed until glorification. But you could make the same argument how you wouldn't stay in heaven because there's no sin in heaven. But are you forced to stay in him? What if you don't remain there? Are you kept in heaven against your will? You, you could make the same argument for that. Now, I know he doesn't believe that. He said that in another part of the program. But there is no free will in heaven. There is no possibility that any one of us who are saved, who've been born again of the Spirit of God, and who will be brought into the presence of Almighty God, we won't even want to sin. 
our will will be good continually. On earth, we have a new nature. We have a new will. We do sin. We still have the old man. But we've been changed. So it's not against your will. Your will has been changed. You now want God. Because if you didn't want God, you'd never have believed in the first place. How is it against your will if your will has been changed to see the heinousness of sin, turn from sin, and turn to God? Who teaches that? Who teaches that it's against your will? Chapter 9 of the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches otherwise. Your will has been changed. What you want has been changed. You now want God. No fallen man of his own nature ever could want God. That's why he can't come to him. He doesn't want him. The gospel is an offense unto him. The robot before or after they get saved. There's not one Christian that says, yes, I love you, Jesus, and follows him perfectly. We still have a will, and we're warned that we're not to allow our hearts to become hardened, where we're not to let our lives burn out. To, but to what level? What, what measurement? Uh, our hearts are, you know, we, we've all got sin, don't we? And we believe, but to what extent, what, what level of hardness, what, what level of faith, or what level of growing in repentance is enough to keep going? Oh, if you have zero faith whatsoever, well, how about those times when you feel like you have no faith? Problematic theology here. We're warned to not let our love, our hearts grow cold and not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Those warnings aren't just bluffs. They're, they're real warnings because those things can indeed happen to us. So it's imperative that we as Christians understand uh, that, that the, the word of God, the gospel is powerful enough to save anybody but they have to believe, and that God can keep anyone, but they can't reject him and continue in a state of rejection because he gives them the freedom to reject his love. He doesn't rescind that condition until we're glorified with him and we've been transformed. I, I would also, you know, when you consider that, that question uh, in regard to, you know, his power and whether his power is, you know, whether we're limiting his power by saying, you know, that we can fall away. Well, the scriptures everywhere say uh, that we can fall away. So do we say uh, Jesus warned that? Okay, the, the scriptures everywhere say that you can fall away. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it does warn that professing believers, professing believers can fall away. Notice I would say professing believers, not people who are actually born. Again, professing believers, people who think they are saved, they're convinced that they are saved, and in the last day they'll cry out, Lord, Lord, have we not done many mighty deeds. And you know, like in Matthew 7, it's very clear that they don't just say Lord once, they're emphatic. Curios, curios. So say twice to him, Lord, Lord. And you know what's even interesting about curios? It is a translation of the Hebrew word Jehovah. They're saying that he is God. They're saying it emphatically. And they lived as if he never gave them a law to obey. They live just like the world. They live like they belong to the world because they were never truly regenerated. There are lots of people who will join churches and will 
seemed to show fruit for a time. But eventually will fall away. Because they were never regenerated in the first place. It was never part of God's decreed will to regenerate that person. And it's part of God's will. Because the word of God, the spirit of God, does exactly what he sets out to do. He doesn't try and fail. He doesn't attempt salvation. If it, He does exactly what he says. Just like in creation, when he spoke it forth, it came to pass. He didn't attempt to do anything and then needed something else. He doesn't need any help from us. Now, so let's look at John chapter 10, verse 25 to 30. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works which I, I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You're not of my sheep, as I told you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I gave them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Well, that's one place that tells us no man, not even you, are able to snatch yourself out of the hand of God. Romans 8 is another place, and you could go through so many scriptures. Because, I'm sorry, but there's so much of the will of man. Will of man. The, the, the two views here are pits with each other is the salvation, either the deciding factor, the deciding vote, the difference that it makes between whether someone is saved or not, is it the will of man or the will of God? Who is the efficient cause of salvation? And the efficient cause of salvation is God. It's only God and God alone. Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read a big section here because I think it's important here. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or pearl, or sword. As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing created shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you, dear brother, from our sister, from the love of Almighty God. If he has saved you, he loves you, he will keep you because of Christ. 
you have a new nature. That's not going away. As branches that are alive in him, that we can be broken off, thrown in the fire, and burned. He warned that we can be blotted out of the book of life, Revelation 3, 5. Uh, he warned that in Revelation twenty two nineteen 19, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, that those who take away from his book can lose their place. Just going to, there's a question there in the chat. Um, so what verses show that faith is a gift, um, a gift of God? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 is one. Um, I know there's some slight debate over the grammar, but some of the grammar um, debates and some of the comments that have been made um, have been pretty silly. Um, one comment is like, oh, one, one of the words is neuter, one of the words is, I think it's feminine. Um, and as one commentator put it, um, responding to another commentator who made that comment, he didn't know anything but Greek. I'd be very, very careful about unless you know Greek and unless you understand Greek grammar and what words can refer to what words, probably best to stay away from it. I, I encourage people to learn Greek, but uh, take the time to um, to learn it properly and uh, not be hasty with anything. Now, so Romans chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, right? It would be a good verse, verse I usually go to for it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves. So I believe that not of yourselves is the faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, by definition, grace is a gift, something given to you. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. Even if grammatically you can make an argument that this isn't speaking about the faith to believe. I, I believe clearly it is, but even if you could make that argument. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of your work. Not of yourselves. Oh, it's referring to the grace. It could be referring to all of it. The faith and the grace is not of yourselves. Fine. It is a gift of God. All of it is not of your... It is the gift of God. If you want to point to all of it, not of works, as any man should boast. What saves you doesn't come from you. Um, I think another place that I would go to um, would be Romans 11 and verse 6 and if by grace it is no longer of works otherwise grace is no longer grace and if it is works it is no longer grace otherwise work is no longer work um there is why isn't what makes what makes faith the exercising of faith in the will of man what makes it different why is it still all of grace? Because it has been given to man. It's not something that distinguishes you from someone else. Grace and works are like oil and water. And even what you required to respond, the way you were required to respond, has also been providing grace. So it's grace, beginning, middle, and end. So, uh, praise God. Yeah, and Ephesians chapter 1, another listener has pointed out another excellent text to point people towards. Um, <laughs> I was listening to something one day, and I, I'll be honest, you know, like, you know, people are, I think it was a podcast. It was years ago. 
And the guy was, re, you know, he said um, somebody was challenging him on, he, he's just changed views. He'd been an Armenian before, now he's changing his view and he's now a Calvinist. And uh, he said, why, he was being challenged on this, and why have you changed your view? And, you know, I think a lot of us have maybe have changed our view, have faced such similar things as well. And he took out Ephesians 1 and he started reading it slowly and you know the typical response and that's your interpretation and the person responded i can't remember who i heard the story from you might have heard it before i'm not interpreting it these things are so unmistakable we all believe in election you must believe in election because it's there in the bible Everybody believes in predestination. It's there in the Bible. The difference is whether you believe that election, that choice, is God or it's man. Oh, it's, it's, it's God choosing based on man's choice. No, that's really man's choice then because God is responding to what man does. That's really man's choice. If you're doing... If you're like swimming around and there's a bunch of people drowning and you're trying to save everybody, but some of them are panicking and you can't save them. And the other people are cooperating. That's the picture that the Arminian picture of salvation is presented as. But the problem is men aren't drowning. They're drowned. They're at the bottom of the ocean. They're dead. There's no way responding to it. They're... They're no inclined towards it. And you say, well, it's still the, the lifeguard, whoever saves the person. Yes, but what made the difference between, say, there's two people who got rescued and two people who didn't get rescued? We would say it's the fault of those people who didn't get rescued. And thankfully, you see these two people here? Well, thankfully, they were cooperative. They didn't panic. There was some degree of credit there. In salvation, it's of the Lord. Every single part of it is of the Lord. Otherwise, we tarnish the gospel. Again, I, I say this. Consistent Arminians, and I praise God there's not many of them, but consistent Arminians, it does go to a false gospel. But, praise God, there's blessed inconsistencies. We all have them, by the way. Plenty of them do believe their true gospel, but then this philosophy that's been stuck onto it in order to insert free will is completely at odds with it. But they do believe the true gospel, just a, most of them do. But again, just like that thread in the jumper, it will unravel it if, if it is followed to its logical conclusion. In the heavenly kingdom, everything that they have uh, is stored up for them. So did Jesus basically limit uh, the power of God? And that, that, and, and somehow, and by the way, the way that question was couched, it sounds like somebody might be sharing with her that you're not accepting, really believing in, in, in Jesus' gospel the way you ought to. You're rejecting his sacrifices. If I remember the words you just read, you're rejecting his sacrifice if you don't believe OSAS. I thought, hmm. So it's basically saying you have to believe once saved, always saved <laughs> to be saved. Wow. So if you don't believe that any longer and you once believe that, do you lose your salvation? Well, obviously you can't, according 
to that belief system. And also, I'd, I'd pose this question. If uh, the, the, the logic is all over the place, um, frustratingly so. Yeah, um, if you believe... Okay, if you're taking this logic to its logical conclusion, and if you were not as... Anyway, I don't even think it's worth responding to. But... I don't know. You're just sacrifice if you don't believe OSAS. I'm going to give you another example. Um, rather than responding directly to this, let's use another example. You know, something that's an inconsistency. If you say you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe the gospel, and I think the reason why they're saying this is it's a rejection of the power of God, which I do believe it is, but people don't see it as that. So I believe that still a lot of these people would be saved. Um, Massively inconsistent. I think a lot of them are not as well. Um, who is who? Don't know. Um, so I do believe it's a problematic doctrine. But just say, right, somebody says they're a believer in Jesus Christ. They believe um, that he died and rose again. They believe all this, but they reject the Trinity. Would you say that that's adding to the gospel that if somebody says, I don't think you've got a credible profession of faith if you deny this. That's kind of the implication here. And of course, the Trinity is far more glaringly, really, you know, do you really believe in the same Christ? Well, I would say in, this, in another sense, is it as obvious as the Trinity? No. But do you believe in the same Christ? Do you believe the same Christ of the scriptures who is not just able to save, but sufficient to save at every point, that it all depends on him, not on you. That Jesus, not the God who tries and fails. God never failed at anything. And it's sad because the God of the unbelieving world seems to be presented here rather than the God of Scripture. The God who, do, who brings about whatsoever comes to pass. So you have to say that there are doctrines. There are doctrines which go together. If somebody claims to believe in Jesus, he can say he believed in the death, burial, resurrection, that he died for my sins, all that kind of stuff. But then you believe other stuff and you go, I don't know if you really believe that. So there can be other doctrines that you believe that would cast doubt on your belief in Christ. Again, I, I, again, I come up with the, the very obvious one of the Trinity. But there can be other ones as well, obviously. So this isn't adding to say, you must believe this, this, and this. No, you must believe in the, in the God of Scripture who, who saves. Who saves. So it's basically saying you have to believe once saved, always saved, <laughs> to be saved. Wow. So if you don't believe that any longer, and you once believed that, do you lose your salvation? Well, obviously you can't, according to that belief system. And also, I'd, I'd pose this question. If you're saying you must believe once saved, always saved, to be saved, you are preaching a different gospel. Because that's not the condition of salvation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he tells us that, uh, the condition of salvation in verse 2, 1 and 2 there is belief in what? That Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. So, How many oneness Pentecostals believe that, but den deny the Trinity? 
yeah, again, if you have, you might say that you believe that, and uh, but you believe you press be something else, which really casts a massive doubt on what you just said. That's the whole point. And I wouldn't say that I would say, or oh, definitely somebody who be- denies um, that a person will persevere in the faith. If they deny that, they're definitely not. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. But I'd be concerned. I'd be deeply concerned about that. And there can be other doctrines. What you believe about Jesus, what you believe about salvation, can make you concerned. Could you imagine if somebody says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, he died for my sins. And I, By the way, I'm a Pelagian. Uh, I don't believe in the fall of Adam and all this kind of stuff. Or are you saying you have to believe that Adam fell in order to... There's other doctrines which connect in with the gospel that if you don't believe them, there's a huge inconsistency and you're not believing in the, in the Christ of Scripture. So this argument is silly. And I don't think he would make it for any other doctrine, but for this one, if I'm being honest. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he tells us that uh, the condition of salvation in verse 2, 1 and 2 there is belief in what? That Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day. So by adding that on, that you have to believe that certain thing, and some people teach that, you know, some of those that are in the uh, evangelical grace movement under Wilkins and so forth have taught that. That's a heresy because they're, they're adding a condition to salvation that the scriptures don't, and that's teaching a different way of salvation, a different gospel, I yeah, but again, I would say to you, if somebody came up to, oh, what's the name of the chapel? Um, Blessed Chapel, is that the, somebody came to Blessed Chapel, is that the name of the, his church? Anyway, and said, I reject the Trinity, but can I join? I believe all the things you just said. I believe this, this, and this, but I reject the Trinity. Well, you say, no, 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 but we well, don't believe you're a Christian. Are you saying that I have to believe this, this, and this as well? That's adding to the gospel. You wouldn't say this, okay? So it's, again, it's a, it's not a very well thought out argument. And by the way, I think it's also ironic when you look at Paul define the gospel. I mean, I'm going a little on on this, but it's getting me a little fired up, man. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first couple of verses, Paul talks about them that he's concerned because he hopes he didn't preach to them in vain, meaning to no ultimate effect, that there's still fruit there, and that they didn't believe in vain, and that they continue to hold fast their faith in the gospel, which he goes on to say, verses 3 and 4, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. Uh, uh, on the third day. So it's interesting. When- yeah, because that's an evidence of salvation. This is stuff that Calvinism teaches. Yeah, if they're not he concerned over somebody's soul. I'd be concerned if somebody I preached to, you know, like claimed to be saved and all this kind of stuff wasn't growing in the faith. That's consistent with confessional reform theology from the Westminster or the Heidelberg or whatever. Paul declares this is, I declare unto you the gospel, defines what it is. He also emphasizes continuing to believe. So you have not believed to no ultimate effect. So I'm supposed to ignore that and say, oh yeah, you don't really have to continue. And I don't tell somebody if they believe and want saved. I always. By the way, as well, historically, there's always been not, there's not just one type of faith in the script, belief in the scriptures. There can be a kind of a, an intellectual ascent. Um, I think it's with Agrippa in Acts. And there can be a, the demons believe, uh, James chapter two. 
that's obviously not in a saving sense. So there's there's a faith where you have knowledge, you have a sense that this is true, but you haven't put your trust in it. So I I think what they that's called is historic faith, or you have a kind of a you have a general faith, but it's not a saving faith. A saving faith, a faith that saves, produces fruit. Okay. What type of belief? And that's important to consider in a lot of the texts he's bringing up there. That they, they're not really saved. I tell people that can be a dangerous doctrine. It is for a lot of people because you can end up believing that you can't fall away. And the Bible says, take heed. Let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. It's very dangerous, especially the... Well, look, I, I think the danger... There's a danger if you're in a church and you think and it, it, you say it doesn't matter how you live your life and and you you live a godless life and your life shows no fruit of salvation and you say it doesn't matter because somebody professed belief when they were young and all this kind of stuff. That's a troubling doctrine. That's but that's antinomianism. That's not reformed theology. You see, one minute he's talking about Reformed theology, and then he's talking about nothing to do with Reformed theology. Does the goalposts constantly change? Yes, we should be concerned about that. But again, if somebody has been truly born again of the Spirit of God, they will surely be with Christ when they die. Talk about a worry. Could you imagine if you thought you could lose your salvation, and, and you thought that there was a possibility of that? You know, could you have peace? Thinking it's possible? What what level of coldness or a bad day or whatever do you need to have? No one knows. It's kind of arbitrary. You have to have faith and you have to continue believing. And But ultimately, in this system presented by Joe Schimmel, it's really man is the difference Man is the ultimate deciding factor, not just at the beginning, but also how it finishes. So, which is really sad because all that does, it relegates God down to a supporting role. He merely makes salvation possible rather than actually saving. That's kind of what this happened. And, and if you kind of see that and you believe that, then that's a false gospel. But again, praise God, many of them don't see that and they don't believe that. This is why it's kind of... Augustus Top lady years ago said this, uh, Arminianism is a road to Rome for a reason. It brings free will into the gospel, which William Tyndale... John Knox, not just John Calvin, John Calvin, Martin Luther, on and on and on. And on. Ridley, uh, Latimer. They all rejected free will. They saw man as a slave to sin. Of it that says you could follow away and still be saved. That's that's actually from the serpent, man. Because Paul says, don't be deceived, those who... Yeah, and that last thing he said has nothing to do with Reformed theology. Nothing. 
who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And a lot of the church is deceived to think they can live wicked lives. And we need to repudiate that doctrine and stamp it out wherever we find it. Yeah, and I think it's really important. That's why we do talk to it a lot, because we do meet a lot of believers who have fallen for this. And so often, it's about salvation. you know, we, we talk to them about it, and maybe they'll even bring up this person in my life, even if it's a, a child, a mother, a brother, a sister, a friend, or whatever it is. And it's like, they're not following, but they're still okay, right? And for me, the urgency to recognize what is clearly called to us in Hebrews 3, 12, through 14 specifically, see to it, brethren, none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Mm-hmm. And I actually had First uh, Peter. And if you think about it, how many of us have sinful hearts that are, we feel like we're unbelieving at times. We, we, we have times when we fear. All of us? Then ask yourself, what system of doctrine will cause you to doubt? Um, one pulled up. I know I was looking at the comments while Joe's trying to talk to me a little bit, but I had First Peter 1, 5 pulled up, and I could not think of something with more correlation to specifically Romans chapter 11, starting at verse, I think it's 17, yeah, specifically yeah. about that we are now branches— and for you that are not Jews, right, that we are branches then coming in, an unnatural branch. But Yeah, natural b- branches in Romans 11, really, really quickly. He's talking about natural branches being branched. He's talking about Jews according to the flesh. Some of them are not believers. Some of them break off through unbelief, okay? Doesn't prove his point at all. It doesn't even come close to it. Um, and others are grafted in through belief, Um it's talking about the visible expression of the church. Uh, all Israel shall be saved, verse 26. I believe that's talking about ethnic Israel, which will eventually be saved in the future. Um, Romans 11. I think the problem here with a lot of people is they don't seem to have an an idea or, or, or any sense of the visible church. And the visible church is important because if you're just going with the invisible church, those who are born again, regenerated with the Spirit of God, we can't lift up people's shirts and see E on it and it says elect. We deal with, when we're dealing with people, we deal with the visible church. We can't read people's hearts. But they don't seem to have a sense of that because when you have a group of elders, they're ruling over church under, under shepherds, shepherding God's people according to the word of God. That is based upon the visible church, the visible expression of the church. So what will that look like in the life of the church? Someone who seemed to be a believer falls away. Why? Perhaps because they've never believed in the first place. But the the word of God and the spirit condescends to our understanding and what we see in our life. So trying to show these patterns and everything, and then ignoring, well, you know, ignoring the John 10 passage that I mentioned, ignoring John 6, you know, no one's able to come to him. Well, they say that God draws all people, every single person. He's attempting to save every single person. He's just not quite able, and the difference is, again, man, again, this is the the dangerous problms we get into in this kind of theology. There through faith, and guess what? We're caught off, we're cut off, we no longer have that faith, and for me, to parallel that, with 1 Peter 1.5, which we've been studying a lot of 1 Peter, just some great text, obviously in 1 Peter 
and to see that you are kept by the power of God, and we're told it's through faith. And so Conditional. it's a, it's a, and it's a power that depends on man applying it, not just a power that's free. L- listen to what he says here. The thing when you're talking about specifically, you're talking about the power of God. It'd be similar to you plugging into that power or unplugging that power. Through. That's horrible. You're you're saying through this analogy. I'm sorry, but this analogy is is horrible. This is like saying I have the switch to what happens with the power of God. I I can plug it in or plug it out. You really, one would really need to rethink that analogy because we don't want to make the the Holy Spirit or just sound like some electrical source or he's like some force. That's uh, that's not a good way to go. I, I again, I think it's just an ill thought out analogy. It's a poorly thought out analogy. It's not biblical in any way, shape, or form. And uh, yeah. Your faith, the power is still there. It's always in there. And when you plug into that socket, you are in that socket, and it's his power, That's not right. your I own. remember getting a book when I was a young Christian. I would always... Yeah, but if, if you... Imagine... Okay, we get our, I, get a, I get my electricity from the, the, you know, the electricity board or whoever it is, and what makes the difference to whether the computer gets turned on or off? the person who's turning it on on and off the switch and who's really got the power then who is the efficient cause i hope we're seeing a problem with this uh i hope we're kind of oh there's many other things that could be said um i would encourage you if you've never heard of this concept before of the instrumental cause of justification especially understanding justification that when we trust in because of the work of christ because we trusted in him by faith, yes, that we are declared righteous before him. But what does faith do? What sense is it a cause of salvation? Not an efficient cause of salvation. God is the efficient cause of salvation, but the instrumental or means by which cause of salvation. Okay. I would encourage you to read more upon that. Um, there's a good article online. You don't have to necessarily buy this book, although I don't think it's expensive. Faith Alone by R.C. Sproul. There's an article online, The Instrumental Cause of Justification, which is on the Ligonier website. Um, think about these... Th- oh. <laughs> music. Think about these things, dear brethren. Hopefully that's been a help to you. If, 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 if I didn't explain anything properly, which is entirely possible, entirely probable. Please email me, radio at gmail.com, and I will try to fix, because there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things you could talk about in this, there's a lot of, there's a lot of texts you could bring up, there's a lot of, I'm sure there's still questions that are left in your mind that may not be answered, feel free to send me an email, I might do an extra program on this, not talk about Joe Schimmel, but if you've got anything that you're struggling with, whatever, please feel free to email me, radio at gmail.com, this has been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.